0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, We are continuing in the gospel of Mark. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Mark chapter 12. Uh, We're going to start in verse 28 this morning. And uh, as you're turning to that passage, I want to just share a little bit of um, what's kind of been going on in my week this past week. Um, This morning's sermon is completely different than the one that I intended to preach. And if you would have asked me, Uh, when I was doing my initial survey of this book, or even on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday of this past week, uh, what the focus of this sermon would be, I was really, we were really going to just focus on this idea uh, of tangible ways for us to be fully, more fully committed to loving God and to loving our neighbor, specifically uh, doing both of those things wholeheartedly and sacrificially. And, And I know that we haven't read this text yet, but but that's really what it seems like this text is about, right? Jesus is asked by this scribe, hey, what, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds by basically saying, hey, love God and love others. Now, I don't know about you, but when I examine my own heart, when I examine my own life, I see a great need to love God more fully and to love others more sacrificially in my life. And it seems like that would be a really good thing for us to focus on this week. But, as I spent more time looking at this passage, I began to sense that this isn't the primary concern of this text. And don't get me wrong, this text does certainly speak to that. Jesus is most certainly concerned with how we, as his disciples, love God and how we love others. And we're going to spend some time looking at those things This morning and how we can be more obedient to the greatest commandment. And I really hope that each and every one of us comes away with a greater resolve uh, to do just that. And yet, as I was preparing, I really just sensed the, uh, the, the Holy Spirit saying to me, hey, do you trust me to do with my word what I plan for it? Or are you going to take my word and take matters into your own hands and accomplish what you want to accomplish through my word. In other words, do you, Jordan, think you know what is best, or do you trust that I, God, know what is best? Do you trust yourself and your own insight? Or do you trust me? You know, every Sunday... after we've read uh, after we've read God's word um, we pray and our prayer really just is this concern that God would help us to understand his word more fully and that we as his people would respond with obedience to what is written and it's a similar prayer to what I pray as I'm working on the text throughout the week and this past week I was really just faced with a question do I actually believe that do I really want the Spirit to guide me as I'm studying His Word. And so from the outset this morning, I just want us to be clear. Uh, This isn't the sermon I intended to preach. Hopefully it's a declaration of faith for me that the Spirit, through His power, is able to transform hearts and lives, that I can't transform hearts. I can't transform lives. I can't create in us this greater desire for us to go and live more wholeheartedly in obedience to the call of the gospel. Hopefully this text is a declaration of faith for us that the Spirit would accomplish in us and through his word, his intentions and his plans, not our own. Uh, That might might make sense to you. Um, It might not, um, and that's okay. Uh, Just really kind of what's on my heart this past week. So uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, as I mentioned earlier, Mark 12, verse 28. Please follow along as I read aloud. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribes said to him, you are right, teacher, you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for such a, a precious gift. And we thank you that you have used it throughout the ages. And you use it today across the nations to transform hearts and lives. And so this morning, we just ask that you would do that here in our midst, God, that you would use it to reveal to us our great need for the gospel. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be at work, you would be the one convicting us of the truth of this passage, and and I speak for many here this morning, I'm sure, that, that it is our earnest desire to become more fully devoted to you. And God, for those that aren't there yet, I just ask that you would use this passage to draw them to faith and repentance, as you call us to respond to in your word. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, last several weeks we've been going through um, the gospel, well, actually we've been going through the gospel of Mark for like a year and a half, but last several weeks we've been going through uh, Mark's uh, coverage, I guess, of Jesus's final week uh, right before his crucifixion. We've uh, This starts in Mark 11, uh, goes through the end of, of Mark's gospel. This morning's passage is the fifth of seven straight confrontation passages between Jesus and the religious leaders. So we have these different confrontations between Jesus and the religious authorities in Jerusalem. But, as you may have noticed as we read this text, the, uh, the, the, the hostility that's found in those other passages is notably missing in this confrontation here. So let's go ahead and follow uh, the, the five movements of this passage Uh, as we look at how Jesus is interacting with the scribe. The first thing we're going to see, starting in verse 28, is the scribe's question. So the scribe asked Jesus this question, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now last week we saw that Jesus was engaged in this discussion with the Sadducees. The Sadducees were uh, this uh, religious group uh, in, the, in the first century. They did not believe in the resurrection. They, they thought the resurrection was made up just an unnecessary addition to what the Bible teaches. And, and as they're talking with Jesus, the, the, the question uh, at the, the forefront of this discussion is the resurrection. And this morning's passage actually picks up on the very end of that discussion. The this, this scribe, as Mark describes him, a scribe, and, and a scribe is is really just a a word describing someone who knows their Bible really well. This is a theological expert of the day. A scribe comes up to this growing crowd around Jesus and the Sadducees, and Mark tells us that he is actually impressed with Jesus' answer to the Sadducees. So he goes ahead and asks a question of his own. And notice how different that is than what's taken place before this. In Mark chapter 11, we see that the priests... The, the scribes, so again, the scribes, just like this person, and the elders are trying to destroy Jesus. They come to Jesus, they want to discredit Jesus, and so they ask him where he gets all of this authority. The impl- implication of that question is, of course, Jesus, you don't have the right credentials to be doing all this. After that, Jesus tells this parable of judgment against them, against the religious leaders. And then after that, Mark tells us in chapter 12 that the Pharisees actually come and try to trap Jesus. They don't have pure motives. They intend to just get Jesus in this trap, discredit him before the crowds, or even get him arrested by asking this question of taxes. Should you pay taxes to Caesar or not? After Jesus answers that question, then we have the question of the Sadducees. The Sadducees, again, they don't believe in the resurrection, and yet they come to Jesus asking this question about the resurrection. They see this as a foolproof way to discredit Jesus. Now, Throughout Mark's gospel, Mark stresses two things for how God is at work or being receptive to the gospel in our hearts. And those two things are hearing and seeing. Hearing and seeing are, are essential for true faith. And this scribe, he comes up to Jesus in whatever his original intentions are. If we actually look at Matthew's parallel to this account, we see that he's actually sent by, I think, the Pharisees to go ahead and trap Jesus with this question. But whatever his original intent is, as he comes to Jesus, notice what Mark tells us happens when he is observing Jesus in this discussion. It says that he hears Jesus' response and he sees that Jesus answers well. It seems to indicate that, uh, Mark seems to be indicating that the spirit is at work in this man's life. Whatever his original intention was, according to the Gospel of Matthew, God is at work and he's softening his heart. We we see him hearing and we see him seeing Jesus. And before he can even ask Jesus his question, Jesus' words have begun to melt some of the scribes' cold hearts, some of his animosity toward Jesus, which is why we get this, This genuine question here from the scribe. And as the the debate between Jesus and the Sadducees begins to subside, the scribe steps forward and he asks his his question. What is the greatest commandment? Now, before we get to Jesus' answer, let's consider what specifically the scribe is asking. Around the time of Jesus, the scribes, again, remember just the theological experts of the day, it, the, the scribes had concluded that the Old Testament contained 613 different commands, which is a lot to try to remember. We struggled to remember the Ten Commandments. Imagine trying to keep or remember 613. And so, one of the things that rabbis would commonly do in the first century was to differentiate between what they called the heavier and the lighter commandments of the law. The lighter commandments were those that were basically implications of the heavier commands, or uh, we, we don't want to say more important. Uh, commands and less important commands because it's all God's word. But what commands do we really have to remember so that by remembering those, we are in essence keeping the entire law because the lighter commands are those that are implied in keeping the heavier ones. Think of it a little bit like the Cliff Notes version of the law. And this is a question that was brought to rabbis all the time in the first century. And so in this context, this is a common question asked of rabbis. It's something that Jesus should uh, have an answer to if he is a good rabbi, quote-unquote. And so how does Jesus respond? Verse 29, <clears throat> Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your hearts, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus, in answering this question, he points to two passages in the Old Testament. The first is Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. It's called the Shema. The word Shema comes from the Hebrew word here, which is found at the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, this verse is one of the most important verses in the Bible for the Jewish people. Good Jews would say the Shema every single morning and every single evening before they went to bed. It's a declaration of their faith in the God who had saved them, and the God who had made them a nation, and the God who had entered into this special relationship with them. It was the defining statement of Judaism that separated Israel from the nations. And so Jesus says, one of the most important things for us, one of the greatest commandments, is the Shema. And we're going to look at the significance of this in a moment. The second passage uh, verse that Jesus quotes is from Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19:18 19, says, "This: You shall not take avenge, uh, take vengeance on or excuse me. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord." So this command is found in the midst of charges to the people of Israel to live out holy lives in light of God's own holiness. Notice how verse 18 ends. It says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because I am the Lord. In other words, if you are the Lord's people, then you must love like Now, there's a lot that we could cover in breaking down Jesus' response in in general, and and specifically looking at these two passages. I just want to boil down Jesus' answer into four different categories for us as we consider the implications of what Jesus has said here. So let's go ahead and look at these four areas. First is this. Obedience starts with knowing who God is and what he has done. Obedience starts with knowing who God is and what he has done has done. Jesus answers this question, what is the greatest commandment, in a way that might surprise us. He starts with theology. Now, Jesus very easily could have started with the second half of the Shema. He could have started in verse 5 by saying, hey, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. But instead, he starts in verse 4 and says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The foundation to obedience to God's commands, because this is really a question of obedience, isn't it? When we're talking about what is the greatest commandment, the the implication here is that we would actually obey those commands. And the foundation to obedience to God is actually knowing him. In Deuteronomy, that's exactly what is in view. The people of Israel are about to enter the promised land, and Moses reminds them, right on the verge of the promised land, of what has taken place over the last decades, And even further back than that, Moses reminds them of who God is, that he is a promise-keeping and he is a covenant-making God. And he reminds them of what God has done for them, that he has brought them out of Egypt, that he uh, he has taken care of them in the wilderness. And right as they're about to enter into the promised land, we're given this Shema, we're given this reminder that God is the only God, that there is no other God besides him, and as such. Nothing else in life is worthy of your worship, of your devotion, or of your affection. And that's the message that we see here in the command of verse 30 in Mark chapter 12. Love God with every fiber of your being. Your love for God not only becomes in knowledge to, to who God is, it's the only logical response to who God is into knowing that truth. This is why the rest of Deuteronomy chapter six gives us specific instructions for the people of Israel on how they're to remind themselves of the truth of who God is. Now I don't know about you, but I am am very prone to forget, especially things like this. I'm prone to forget just who God is. And if we want to take seriously the command to love him with every fiber of our being, then we have to permeate our lives with that truth. That he is worthy of worship. Consider again Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Moses says that it is so important to have this right knowledge of God for your obedience to God that you have to store it up in your heart. That's what is said in verse 6, that we have to expose ourselves to the truth, uh, truths of God in Scripture, and that's the foundation for actually loving God, that these truths of who God is should be integrated not only into the internal aspects of your life, that you should store them in your heart, but also in the external parts of your life as well. They should be on your lips When you are sitting down at home, when you are walking out around town, they should be on your lips. The truths of who God is should be the first things that we think of when we wake up, and the last thing that we think of before we go to sleep. That we are to saturate our lives with the truth of who God is, with the truths of Scripture, with reminders, just like the Israelites did, by putting them as signs on their hands, or as a box that they wear on their foreheads, by inscribing them on the doorposts of their houses. Notice that the specifics aren't, aren't what's important here. What's important is a commitment to know God in every area of your life imaginable. But it's not just important for us to know him. Moses says here that we are also supposed to pass on that knowledge to children. Discipleship is focused on who God is and what God has done. Every aspect of life is meant to be understood in respect to who God is and what he has done. And then to pass that knowledge on to the next generation. You want to know what it means to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? this is it. This is it. This concern with knowing who God is, knowing what God has done, passing it on to another generation, reminding yourself constantly, and responding in kind. Obedience starts with knowing who God is and knowing what he has done. For us second category i guess from jesus's teaching is this love for god must be wholehearted this is what jesus has in mind when he talks about loving god with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind with all your strength don't get bogged down in the weeds wondering hey what what is what, what specifically falls into the category of loving god with all my heart and how is that different than loving god with all my soul don't get bogged down in the weeds Big picture here is clear. What Jesus is referring to is this complete, total love of God that should be a part of every facet of your life. There should be no stone unturned. There should be no area of your life that is not surrendered. There should be no facet of you that you still lay claim to. to love your to love God the way that we are commanded to in Scripture means to love him wholeheartedly with every fiber of our being. The third category is this, love, your, uh, love for neighbor must be sacrificial. Love for neighbor must be sacrificial. I think all too often our familiarity with Jesus' words, love your neighbor as yourself, means that it kind of loses its punch. At least it does for me. Jesus' statement forces us to ask ourselves a question, how much do I love myself? How much does Jordan love Jordan? And I'm not talking about self-esteem here. Because self, self-loathing can be a very real thing that, that you may be struggling with. Jesus' words here, they're not a declaration to hate yourself. And perhaps a better way of getting at the heart of Jesus' question here about loving your neighbor as yourself is, is really to ask yourself this question. How often are your thoughts preoccupied, preoccupied with you rather than with others? How often are you thinking about yourself rather than thinking about others. And this is the place where I think we begin to understand what it means for us to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's to begin to get our thoughts off of ourselves and to begin to think about other people. And in a way, this is what the Apostle Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he's talking about our relationship with our, our neighbor. It's in the context of this really powerful passage about food, food of all things. And in this context about food, we have some people who are are, uh, resolute in eating what they know that they can eat because it doesn't matter if this food has been sacrificed to idols or not. I'm going to go ahead and eat it because there's no other, uh, idols aren't real. So I can go ahead and eat it. But then there are other people on the other side of this division who are saying, hey, I can't eat that. And in fact, it makes me uncomfortable. To me, it seems like as someone who came out of paganism, it seems to me like this is a way of worshiping these false gods. And so I just can't do that. And Paul, in this context, basically says to the church in Corinth, stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about other people. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 24 Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor Each of us is consumed with seeking our own good It's our natural tendency and in fact you look at little children And you you can see this very clear in their interactions with one another. Their default impulse is to only be concerned with themselves, only to be concerned with their own happiness. They aren't terribly concerned with the good of others. They look after number one, and everyone else can just go ahead and fend for themselves. And it is so easy for us to pick at children and say, hey, yeah, there's there's a primary example of what this looks like or what you should not do, when we do the exact same thing. In fact, I don't think it's terribly different in, in adults. It's actually more dangerous because we're just better at hiding it. So let me give you an example uh, from, from last Friday night. I, I think, um, just a caveat here, I think that I talk about pizza in my sermons probably more than anyone else that that I know. Um, it, it's just because I love pizza a lot. So um, it's it's just a part of who I am. Uh, so uh, on Friday night, my family's having pizza. And we go ahead and we go to Godfather's. We get a large pepperoni pizza. Uh, for me and, and the kids, um, and I'll, of course, take the pepperoni off for the kids. And Crystal, we got her a small taco pizza because that's what she likes, and, and uh, you know, no judgment. Um, pepperoni's the best, though. So we're we're sitting there at the table, and, and one thing that I've noticed as my kids have gotten older is that as they've gotten older and they've gotten bigger, the amount of pizza that they eat increases as well, Right? Uh, that, that just happens. I'm, I'm actually really nervous for when they are teenagers because then they will eat just as much as or more than I do. And, w- and one thing that I've noticed is that, it, 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 at least for me, um, <laughs> eating pizza is a zero-sum game. In other words, every single piece of pizza that my kids eat is a piece of pizza that I cannot eat, right? And so as I'm, uh, as, as I'm passing out this food to the kids, I'm not concerned primarily with, are they getting enough food? Are they enjoying their food? Are they going to have enough food that they are going to enjoy? And you know, can this be a nice special treat for them? My primary concern is, am I going to get enough food? Am I going to be able to enjoy the food that I want to eat? Because I've had a long, hard week and I have been really looking forward to this pizza. And and kids, stay away from my pizza. In other words, what I've been doing is I've been seeking my own good Not the good of my children. I'm not terribly different than than my kids. In fact, I'm just better at hiding it. And because I'm an adult, I can actually take the pizza before they go ahead and eat eat it. That's why Paul's explanation here of loving our neighbor in 1 Corinthians is so countercultural. It's because it's so active. Our default is to seek or to pursue or to chase After our own good. It's not just about being friendly. It's not just about being nice in the grocery store line. Scripture teaches us to concern ourselves with our neighbor's good. And that is a costly thing. Because it means that I have to stop thinking about myself. I have to stop thinking about my little kingdom. And I have to begin thinking about the good of others. And looking for the good of others. And to chase after it. And to do what I can to see that good flourish. Love for neighbor must be sacrificial. One final thought on Jesus' teaching. This is the fourth one. Love for God and love for neighbor are inseparable. Love for God and love for neighbor are inseparable. Notice Jesus' language at the end of verse 31. There is no commandment, singular, greater than these, plural, these two commands are linked. They're joined at the hip. They cannot be separated. The Apostle Paul says as much in his first letter, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his own brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Separating the love of God for the, from the love of others, specifically in the context of 1 John, is talking about Christians, other Christians, If we try to separate this love for God from a love for others, it doesn't just mean that we are inconsistent. Scripture says we're liars. We're lying about actually loving God. Love for God and love for neighbor are inseparable. And yet I see so often in my own lives that I can profess a faith in loving Jesus. And I'm indifferent to those who are around me. I remember right after I became a Christian, I was still in high school, and one of the hardest things I ever heard. um, I was, man, I was on fire. I was reading my Bible, like, nonstop. I was involved in all of these different ministries. And one time, we were driving from Des Moines back to my hometown in southwest Iowa. It's about a two-hour drive. And and I, I still remember where we were. We were in Creston, Iowa, right next to the Dairy Queen. And my mom was trying to talk to me in the front seat, and I was just ignoring her because I was trying to memorize Ephesians 3. And she kept trying to talk to me. Hey, Jordan, I'm asking you a question. And I just kept ignoring her. And then finally, she said, you know, for someone who says they love God so much, you do a really bad job of loving other people. And it's so... I mean, that sticks with me today. What, I don't know how long ago that was, but it was a long time ago. It is so easy for us to be inconsistent in our love. But Scripture says we're not just being inconsistent, we're being liars. Love for God and love for others must be inseparable. Let's keep moving. The scribe asks Jesus, which of these commandments is the greatest? Jesus gives his response. He says, love God, love others. Obedience to those commands, it starts with actually knowing God and and what he has done for us. And then we must love others. And we have to keep these two things uh, together. We can't separate them. And notice how the scribe responds, verse 32. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, as far as I could tell, Jesus is the first Jewish figure to tie these two commands together. He's the first person to say that the implications of loving God must be expressed in our love for others. And this gets a cry of agreement from the scribe. His, his statement here, the words, you are right, literally are just, well said. I get it, yes, that's perfect, Jesus. He's, again, he's impressed with Jesus and his answer. And then he expands on Jesus' answer. He says, you know what, you're not just saying something that is found in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. This is also what we see in 1 Samuel 15. And he quotes 1 Samuel 15 in this language about whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And what's significant is this teacher of the law, he's standing just a couple hundred yards from the moment or from the altar where sacrifices are being offered by the thousands because it's Passover week. And he says, You know what, Jesus, you're right. To love God and love others is even more important than that. This man gets it. He gets it. He seems to be a sterling example of godliness, doesn't he? Now, he may have come to to trap Jesus, but his heart is malleable enough that he gets changed by Jesus' teaching. He genuinely wants Jesus' opinion on the important matters. He wants to to hear the heart of of Jesus here. When he hears it, he checks Jesus' answer with the word of God, and he says, yep, that lines up with what the Bible says. He's genuine. He's sincere, he knows his Bible, he agrees with Jesus, he responds wisely, and by agreeing with Jesus, it implies that he seeks to love God, and he seeks to love others. So then we go to Jesus' response, and we're just shocked. Verse 34, the first half. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are are not far from the kingdom of God. In other words, you are so close. You're right there. You're on the one yard line. But you're not in the end zone yet. You're not there yet. What? Let me use the exact same language. Here is a man who is genuine, who is sincere, who knows his Bible, he agrees with Jesus, he responds wisely. By agreeing with Jesus, we can comfortably assume that he seeks to love God wholeheartedly, he seeks to love others sacrificially. And then, we might, and then we hear Jesus' response and we say, well if, well, if this man doesn't get into the kingdom of God, then who on earth gets in? Who possibly gets in God's kingdom? Jesus' disciples asked this exact same question in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, Jesus turns away what seems to be another perfect candidate for the kingdom. Rather than put it in my own words, I just want to read to you Mark chapter 10, starting in verse uh, 17. A man ran up to Jesus and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to Jesus, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Over and over in his ministry, Jesus turns away those who you and I would consider to be the perfect candidates for starting a religious movement. In fact, there are plenty of books on there out there about church planting, and they tell you the type of people that you need to have as a part of your launch team. And this rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10 and this scribe in Mark chapter 12 would be at the top of the list of the people that you want to start a religious movement with you. They're the people that you can depend upon. They are the people that are going to get things done. They are the people who can disciple others. This is the type of person that you would want. And then Jesus comes along and Mark, Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 12, he, he says, you're close. But you're not there yet. In spite of everything, this man is not yet in the kingdom. Why? The answer comes in the passage that we'll look at next week. Mark chapter 12, 35 through 37. Jesus actually is now the one asking the questions. He says this, As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. I'm giving away kind of the main point of next week, but the intention of this passage is to say that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is not just the Messiah. Jesus is the Lord himself. And this man is not in the kingdom because he doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't understand who Jesus is. Notice what he calls Jesus in our passage. Verse 32, it's right there. He doesn't say Christ he doesn't say Jesus the Messiah. He doesn't say Lord. He doesn't say King. He doesn't say Savior. He says, well said, teacher. He understands that, that Jesus is a teacher, but he doesn't go any further than that. He's so close to the kingdom. He's, he's right there. He's got the right heart, the right desire, the right view of the Bible. But he doesn't have Jesus. And that's enough to leave him out of the kingdom. That's how this passage ends. Verse 34, the rest of it. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. We're left wondering what happens to this man. He's so close. Did he get in? Did he figure it out? Rest of Mark doesn't tell us. Acts doesn't tell us. The New Testament doesn't tell us. We don't know what happens to this man. Because it really doesn't matter. At least not for you Today. The question that we all have to wrestle with is not what happened to this man, but what about me? What about me? Am I in the kingdom? Or am I just close? Am I like this man? I'm well-intentioned. I'm knowledgeable of the scriptures. I desire to love God and I love others. I'm respectful toward Jesus and others, but one day I'm going to find myself outside of the kingdom because I don't know who Jesus really is. I began this morning talking a bit about the conviction I had about the main purpose and concern of this passage. I had every intention of preaching this passage, so let's get fired up to serve others, to love others, to love God. Good things important things, they're commands. As I read this passage and I consider what it means to love God with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and all my strength, I see one thing that's abundantly clear, I don't do that. Even while I've been preaching this morning, my mind has been consumed with other questions and other thoughts. How are they going to respond to this? Are they going to think this is as good as last week's, or the weeks before, or the week before that? Should we make any changes to the rest of the service? Even as I'm talking about loving God wholeheartedly with every fiber of my being, my mind is running away from that. I don't love God wholeheartedly. Don't even get me started on loving my neighbor as myself when I consider that it means to, when it's to love my neighbor, means to actively pursue their good rather than my own. I don't even know if I want to do that. And it's in that place that I think we see the heart of this passage. The greatest commandment shows us our greater need for the gospel. The greatest commandment shows us our greater need for the gospel. These two commandments, to love God, love others, are given to us to show us how deeply we need the gospel. And if we don't let that truth sink in, if we don't feel that we fall so short of keeping these commands, we feel it deep in our bones, then I really wonder if we're just like the scribe in this passage. We're like those who are close, but man, we're t- we're not quite there this passage is a warning if we're willing to hear it the greatest commandment doesn't if it doesn't show us our great need for the gospel then it's going to become a barrier to the gospel we can get so caught up in trying to love others well enough love god good enough we can get so consumed with that that we miss the conviction of the Spirit. We miss the ways that God is saying, hey, you know what? I've given you these commands, yes, so you would follow them, but also to realize that you can't follow them. And you need me to save you from yourself. The kingdom isn't found in serving others. it's found in Jesus. The greatest commandment should show us our greater need for the gospel. How do we respond to this passage? First, we should absolutely love God wholeheartedly. It's a command. Love God wholeheartedly. We should take it to heart we should truly know who God is, store up his word in his, in our hearts so that way we can truly know who he is and what he has done for us. We're commanded to resolve to love God in such a way that we raise up the next generation to do the exact same thing. It should transform every area of our lives. And yes, we, of course, should love others sacrificially. In April, we're going to have a six-week series in our uh Crosswinds classes about. How can we be more effective about loving those that are around us? Loving our literal neighbors. Remember the old spiritual, they will know we are Christians by our by our love. Yes, Christians should be known for our love of others. And we are commanded to do that, to take seriously what it means to love others, even when it means that we have to actually pursue their good rather than our own. But this, command, this passage reminds us that if we do that, we're close, but we're not close enough. We cannot truly love God, we cannot truly love others without seeing first our need for the gospel. And for some of us here this morning, that means a new life. That means finding a new life in Jesus because you're outside the kingdom. You're outside the kingdom because you haven't repented, you haven't believed in the gospel, you've sought to build your life on religion, on doing good for others, and this veneer of Christianity. And Jesus says, that's close. You're so close. But you're not there yet. The greatest commandment shows us our great need for the gospel. There's no kingdom without the king. There's no kingdom without the king. To enter the kingdom is to do exactly what Jesus says at the beginning of his gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and and believe in the gospel. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus and what he has done for us to save us from our sins, not just as a a verbal assent, but something that you believe with every fiber of your being, if you've never repented to God and, and come to him as a desperate savior, the one you need to save you from your sin, then this text is very clear. It says you need Jesus. You need Jesus because there is no kingdom without the king. And yet... It's not just those who don't have the king that need to hear that. Every single one of us needs to hear that. We cannot truly love God. We cannot truly love others without seeing our need for the gospel. Not just once, as though it's an admission into heaven, and then we can just do our own thing. But daily, that we would be a people who are led by the Spirit, that we are convicted by the Spirit to see how desperately we need the gospel. Today, just as much as yesterday. 50 years into your Christian walk, 60, 70 years into your walk, how desperately you need the gospel. The greatest commandment shows us our great need for the gospel. And there's no kingdom without the king. Let us be a people who cling to the message of the gospel. That the king has made a way for us to dwell with him forever through the death of his son by coming to earth and dying on our behalf. Let's be a people who love God wholeheartedly, love others sacrificially, but as a response to the king who has loved us first. As a response to the King who loved us sacrificially first. Let's pray. Lord, we are in desperate need of your grace and your mercy to be at work in our hearts and our lives. God, I pray that a day would not go by without us seeing our desperate need for you, for the Spirit to be at work in our hearts, pointing us to Jesus. Help us, God, wherever we're at this morning, that the truth that there is no kingdom without you would would sink deep into our bones. And we would see our need for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.